If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Acts chapter 26 this morning. We think that one of the most uh, incredible realities in all of history and all the universe is that God has, in fact, spoken. Uh, He didn't have to speak to us, but He has spoken to us uh, in His Word and in creation and through His Son. And so what we do as part of our regular worship is we open up the Scriptures, God's very Word to us, and as I mentioned, we lean in to listen. When Janine and I found out that we were expecting our, our third child, um, we were excited, we were thrilled, but one of the first things that went through our minds was um, we're going to need some more space. We were uh, living in a little townhouse outside of Chicago, and we had two boys already, and it was a two-bedroom townhouse, and it was sufficient for that time, but we realized if we have another boy, it's fine, we can kind of put him in with the other two boys and get some bunk beds, but if it's a girl, we want to make sure that she has her own space. And when we found out it was a girl, we started to think, okay, what are we going to do here to get some more space? And Well, in God's good providence, there was an older guy at the church who was a retired contractor. He was uh, kind of a patriarch among builders. He was well-known, well-respected. He had had knees. uh, He he was an older gentleman who kind of warbled around with a a cane, um, always had a five o'clock shadow, um, and always looked like he was in tremendous pain, frankly. But he said to us, very graciously, uh, he found out we were expecting, and for, for whatever reason, just loved our family, he said that he would build us a house for cost, which we thought was a, a wonderful, generous uh, gesture. Actually, we were blown away by it. And so we agreed. He did say, though, I want to let you know, in order to, to cut down preserve uh, or cut down on cost, I am going to ask you to jump in and do some of the work as we go along. Uh, well, I'm not exactly the most handy guy in the world, so uh, this is not my sweet spot at all. So I thought, okay, I'm, I'm willing to do this, but you know, I'm going to need some real, real coaching on this. And we watched as the foundation was poured. If you've ever you know, been, had a house built or know someone who's had a house built, it's an exciting thing. And we were, we were keeping pictures and putting them in a little uh, sort of journal as things progressed. And, and then every once in a while he would say to us, okay, I'm going to need your help moving debris uh, out of the yard or laying sod or whatever it was. And, and then when the house was done, he said, in order to save, I don't remember the exact amount, $10,000 or whatever it was, I'm going to need you and Janine to paint the entire interior uh, of your home. Um, now, this wasn't a huge house, but it wasn't what we would call an open concept. It was a lot of small rooms, angular ceilings, and so I thought this is going to be a, a very difficult thing. I said, I've, I've never really done you know, any painting. I don't know how good I'll be at it. He said, don't worry. The more you do it, the easier it will become, which my first thought was, so the first few rooms are going to look like garbage. Um, but I didn't say that. I, I was grateful for his uh, help. And he said, the more you do it, the easier it will become. Now, this makes sense and, and certainly is a, a truism that we can say uh, we've seen in our own experience. The more you do difficult things, the, the easier they become. Think about riding a bike for kids or, or parallel parking for adults or public speaking or working out or whatever it is. You do sort of gain a familiarity and things get easier. Um, Frankly, I never got any better at painting. It never came easily to me. Um, I never got to a point where I could cut in lines very well or, or roll walls without the fingers. You know, if you're a painter, you know what I mean. Janine became a master at it, um, but I never got much better. But we think about that concept, that idea, that notion that the more you do it, the easier it will become. We say, yeah, that's true about some areas of life, but it's certainly not true about everything, is it? Certainly not true, I don't think, about evangelism. 
sharing our faith with other people. We know that we need to do it. Uh, We know that we've been commanded to, to share our faith by both Jesus and the apostles to do the work of an evangelist. Um, It's even part of our mission statement as a church. Our mission, treasuring Jesus, becoming like Him together, and sharing His gospel. But it never seems to get easy, does it? With our culture, uh, the way that it is, especially the sort of cancel mentality that we talk about and hear about, and um, the fact that we've really never been more easily offended, perhaps, never been less likely to forgive or had a, have a harder time forgiving others. We say, I don't really want to talk to someone about something that I know is going to make them upset. I don't know what the consequence will be for me. When's the last time you share the gospel with someone? Just to get an idea. I'm not, I'm not asking you to, to raise your hand or to, to say it, but you just think about how difficult it actually truly is. Now, it's probably always going to be challenging. It will always be challenging. But I wonder if the task is made more daunting because of some misconceptions we have about what we're actually doing when we evangelize. In the passage we're in this morning, as we continue to work our way through uh, this book of Acts, we're going to see three, what I'm calling, clarifying examples of what evangelism truly is and, and really what evangelism is not. So you can all these correctives or myth busters or whatever you want, but we're going to get some clarity as to what we're actually doing when we share the gospel. We've been in the book of Acts for about six months now. We only have two weeks left in this study uh, after today. Um, and for half of the book, the Apostle Paul has been the guy featured in the book, right? I mean, he's the guy that we've, we've read the most about, his missionary journey, journeys and his evangelistic efforts and uh, the riots that he's caused and, and all the issues that he's had with the religious leaders, and the churches that he's planted, the believers that he's encouraged. We've seen all of these things. And by the time we get to Acts 26, you know, Paul, by God's grace, has had a very fruitful ministry. But here he is languishing in prison for two years, held captive by Felix, saw him last week, the governor of Judea. But there's a new governor in town, and his name is Festus. So Felix has been succeeded by Festus. And as you may recall from last week, Felix actually liked Paul. He enjoyed listening to Paul. In fact, he invited his wife Drusilla to come and listen to what Paul had to say. They met with him more than once to, to engage the apostle. But the new governor, Festus, he's not so sure. He's not so sympathetic. He basically inherited this prisoner, Paul, and he would prefer to have him kind of out of the system. Only a few days after Festus had taken office, some religious folks in Jerusalem, they try to persuade the new governor to send Paul to them so that they can ambush him and kill him. But Festus says, you know, I'm, I'm going to keep him here. I, I want to meet him, and I want to at least hear from him myself. So in an effort to figure this thing out and hopefully clear the slate and maybe, maybe start fresh, Festus calls a tribunal where he can get to the bottom of this and figure out what in the world is he going to do with this guy, Paul. And in that trial, Paul is finally able to speak. Not surprisingly, uh, I think we would certainly feel the same way, uh, Paul is tired of being in prison for two years without any real charges against him, uh, perhaps a little frustrated, perhaps a little impatient, and maybe he even sees that Festus is starting to buy into what some of his accusers are saying. Uh, and so he appeals to 
the Caesar. One biblical scholar writes, Weary of strife, his active spirit could ill endure the repeated delays and wearing suspense of his trial and imprisonment. He therefore decided to exercise his privilege as a Roman citizen of appealing to Caesar. So if you were a Roman citizen, uh, which was a really big deal, you had the exclusive privilege, the prerogative to appeal to Caesar and be heard by the one who ruled over the whole land. Um, So when it came time to plead his case, that's what Paul does. Festus says in Acts 25, 12, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. So Festus kind of washes his hands of Paul, much like Pilate did with Jesus, and he sends Paul back to his cell to wait for a convenient time for Paul to be sent to the high court in Rome. But all this, as all this is going on, a few days later, before Paul can be sent away, the king of the region arrives in town. His name was Agrippa. And he comes to visit alongside his little sister, Bernice. Now, keep in mind, in Roman society, there were very clearly defined sort of levels of social order. So you had the governors who were over a specific region, and they were under the kings. Kings were often called the Herods. Herod wasn't a personal name. It was a title. And the Herods, the kings, were under the Caesar, the emperor or the Caesar. And at that time, the the emperor was Claudius Caesar Augustus Germanicus, who was also known as Nero. Well, when the king, and I'm, I'm, you think, what are you doing with such a, a long intro here? I'm, I'm trying to give you two chapters of history before we actually read Acts 26. When the king visits, King Agrippa, he asks Festus, how are things going in your new role as governor? And Festus presumably says, you wouldn't believe the week I'm having. I've got this guy Paul, and everybody around me wants to see this guy killed. I'm not really sure what to do with him at this point. I was in, he, he, was, he came to me from Felix, my predecessor, who did nothing uh, with him. But now I, I think I've got him cleared off my hands. He has appealed to Caesar, and that's where I'm going to send him. But the king, again, Agrippa, he's in town, and he says, You know what? This guy sounds like an interesting guy. I want to meet this guy. I want to hear from this guy myself. And so Festus gets the palace ready with all the pomp you might expect with the arrival of a king, armed armed soldiers, um, military brass band, uh, flags waving, horses prancing around, everything you can imagine that says this is a huge, big festival, a big activity, the key players of the city present, and then King Agrippa, along with his little sister Bernice, enter the room to finally hear from Paul. So let's look at Acts 26, verses 1 through 11. This is Paul before King Agrippa. Here reads the word of the Lord. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify that, according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. 
And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So you may recall a week or two ago, we talked about when you share your your faith, you share your own conversion story, what God has done in your life. I mentioned this phrase, don't diminish the dark days. In other words, you know, sometimes when people share their testimony, they make it sound like uh, before they became a Christian, they were just sort of maybe confused, or they were still a really good person. They just didn't have all the information. They didn't have the details, or they were they knew God, they loved God, or whatever it is. But then they put their faith in Christ. And what I said to you back then is that's actually not a biblical testimony, right? Before God saved us, before God saved you, before God saved me, I was actually rebelling against God. We were we were under the wrath of God under the curse of God. We weren't good people who just didn't know what to do. We actually were spiritually dead enemies of God. Well, we see a very good example of not diminishing the dark days in Paul's testimony. Um, He doesn't make light of his pre-conversion days. He describes in detail all that he had done in opposition to Jesus and Jesus' followers. He said, I locked them up in verse 10. In verse 11, I tried to make them blaspheme the name of Jesus. And then later on in verse 11, I followed and persecuted them all the way to the foreign cities. Paul doesn't diminish the dark days. He's not sugarcoating where he was or who he was before God saved him. Now, look at what he says further about his conversion, verses 12 through 16. In this connection, so he's, he's following followers of the way and trying to persecute them. And in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority of and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. So Jesus, the Lord Jesus appears to Paul on the road to Damascus, and he tells Paul in verse 15 that he he has appeared to Paul for the purpose of, of appointing Paul as a servant and as a witness. This is language, by the way, of salvation. When Jesus in Mark's gospel talks about those that he brings to himself, those that he he redeems, those that he makes alive, he says they have been appointed to be with him. Uh, Earlier in Acts chapter 13, we read about the message of the gospel going out, and we're told that all that as many as were appointed unto eternal life believed. 
So this is language. Jesus is actually telling Paul that he has appointed him. He has, brought, he has called him and chosen him and made to be his very instrument. So despite Paul's rebellion and horrific past, Jesus says uh, he saves Paul. He appoints Paul to be a witness to his saving power. Notice Jesus doesn't say, I want you to go and save the world. He doesn't even say, I want you to go win the world for me. He says to Paul, I want you to be a witness, where we've talked about a lot in this book, a witness to the things, verse 16, in which you have seen me. This is such a beautiful turn of phrase. Jesus says, all the miracles that you've been performing, all the blind people who have been given back their sight, and, and the lame people who have been given back their mobility, and the dead people have been brought to life, all the miracles you've seen, I'm actually the one doing that. Those are the things that you're seeing me in. I am the acting agent. I'm the one doing the work here. These are all the things that I have done, Jesus says. Those are the things in which you have seen me, he says. Now, he tells Paul, go and tell everyone else what you've seen me do in your life and in the life of others. I think one reason, I talked about the difficulty sharing our faith and how, you know, it's not ever going to be easy. But I think one of, the, one of the reasons we're so reluctant to share the gospel is I think even though we would never maybe say it, I think we do believe that the results are kind of on us. We're the ones responsible to, to say it right, to be winsome enough, to be clever enough, to be accurate enough, or whatever it is. We have to, be, we have to do it well enough so that we can actually see success. We believe it's our job to kind of convince someone to believe. But the reality is we're simply bearing witness to what Jesus has done and is still doing. So in, in our lives and in the lives of others, when we share our faith, we share the gospel, we're talking about, we're telling people what God has done in Christ, both broadly to redeem and save the world, but also what he's done in our own life. So here's, here's our first, first sort of corrective, and these will come pretty quickly, these points. Uh, salvation is God's work from beginning to end. We simply experience and tell about His amazing grace and transforming power. It's hard to share our faith. And when I asked you a moment ago, when's the last time? Maybe you had to go back weeks or months or years since you share the gospel with anyone. It's very, very difficult. I was sharing the gospel with a man about two weeks ago, and, and he was argumentative, and he, he did, didn't really care to listen, and, and he was just pushing back in areas. And, and I really wanted to just stop. I wanted to just change the subject because it was, he was becoming you know, agitated. It's very difficult, but it is freeing to know. It is freeing to know that we're just servants and witnesses, right? We're telling people what Jesus has done. God is going to do the work. The, 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 the goal, the, the end result is not on us. My first sales job, I was a freshman in college, was at a, a store called Kenny Shoes. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of this or not. There, there were a bunch of them across the country, but they all closed in 1998. Um, but I worked there in 1989, the fall of my freshman year of college, and my manager was a guy by the name of Cliff, not to be confused with uh, our own Cliff, uh, our facility manager. But this, this Cliff, his mantra in the store was, and he said this over and over and over again, it was this, 
no one walks. No one walks. So his philosophy was, if somebody comes in the store, it's because they want to buy a pair of shoes. And so no one should ever walk, that is to say, leave the store without a pair of shoes. Now, it was really a ridiculous philosophy because half the people that came into our store were teenagers who just wanted to get away from their mom and dad, and the other half were senior adults who were just trying to get their steps in. And so they didn't really, nobody really wanted to come in there to buy a pair of shoes. Um, they were just sort of you know, walking around the mall or whatever. Um, but Cliff constantly repeated, no one walks or you failed as a salesperson. Well, we never say those words to ourselves, but I wonder if we sometimes believe that if we can't convince someone, our mom or dad, husband, wife, friend, child, neighbor, whatever it is, if we can't convince someone, it's because something we're not doing right. We just got to, we got to say it differently. We got to do it better, whatever it is. But the reality is the deal, so to speak, is not ours to close. We don't have to make sure that no one walks. This is God's work that we simply testify to. God has made it possible for people to be forgiven, for people to be reconciled to Himself, to be cleansed and made new. And He's done that by sending His Son to die for our sins. But we can't make anyone receive Jesus. But we can testify about who Jesus is, how the resurrection of Jesus is real, how His resurrection power is at work even today making men, women, and children brand new. We can't make anyone receive Jesus, but we are called to tell others about Jesus. And this is why Jesus says what He does to Paul, verses 16 through 18. He says, But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me, and to those uh, in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, Jesus reminding Paul what he did for, for Paul, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may, fi- they may turn from their darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Then they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, I read that and you may say, well, wait a second. You said that it's God's work from beginning to end. And here Jesus says to Paul, he says, I want you to go and do this to open their eyes so that they may turn and so on. Well, we have to understand that, that in light of the very last phrase in verse 18, which is critical. Those who are sanctified, how? By faith in me. So the Bible talks about sanctification. It really, really, there's two types of sanctification we see in the Scripture. There's what's called definitive sanctification and progressive sanctification. But, but most of the time in church circles, we almost always talk about the latter, progressive. So progressive sanctification means that those that have been made alive by Christ, brought to saving faith in Jesus, are continually and progressively made more like Jesus by God, conformed into the image of God's beloved Son. So if you are in Christ... You will grow in Christ's likeness. Now, it's over a long period of time, and, and sometimes it's three steps forward and two steps back, and, but there is forward progress taking place because God is the one who is making you more like Jesus. That's called progressive sanctification. But definitive sanctification refers to this once-for-all definitive act by which God declares us forever holy, positionally, 
in Jesus. So when a person repents and turns to Jesus in faith, God then, God then sets him or her apart, that's what sanctified means, sets him or her apart as belonging to God, and God then sees that person forever through the lens of Christ and Christ's righteousness. So one of the greatest and most important challenges that every single one of us faces as Christians is to learn to see ourselves as, as God sees us. When we sin, which we all do and have done even this morning, when we blow it, when we fail to keep our promises, when we lie to one another and we lie to God, when we fail to keep God's commands, we have to remember God has sanctified us. He has set us apart by faith in Christ, and so His perspective of us never changes. It never changes. He sees us as holy, clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. This is what happens at the moment we believe. And this is what we are calling people to do, is to believe. This is what, we, this is what Jesus says. He, he, we're, we're pointing people to Jesus. We're, we're inviting people, calling people to believe in Jesus. So here's the second myth. I think the second myth we tend to believe is that the ultimate goal is to get people to act differently, to behave, to change their behavior. But that's not the goal. That's a misconception of what evangelism is. Here's the corrective, uh, so to speak, our second point. Our intent in sharing the gospel is not to get people to do anything, but to believe what's already been done. Now, how does that help us in sharing our faith? Well, again, it takes the burden off of us. You know, we, we, we see people acting in ways that we, we don't agree with and doing things that we think we would never do and, and sinning in ways we know are an offense to God. We think, i got to get that person to change what he's doing. i got to convince her to change her behavior. That's not what God calls us to do. That's the Holy Spirit's work. and We can't be the Holy Spirit in someone's life. When we talk to unbelievers, we're not trying to get them to stop cussing or lusting or getting angry or being rude or whatever it is. Our desire is to help them to see Jesus, who He is, what He has come to do, and why they need Him. Now, let me illustrate this for you. A few years ago, I was, I was walking in a remote South African village, and at that time, the sun was, it was just under the blistering sun, and it was starting to get... The sun was starting to go down, and starting, dusk was starting to fall. And so we're, I'm walking along with this, this American missionary, a guy from Indiana, uh, who had planted a, a missions work there. And I'm, the whole time, I'm, uh, now that was probably my third or fourth time being there, I'm still looking around constantly for snakes and hyenas. You know, hyenas, you know, they may be called laughing hyenas, but they're the most vicious of all the creatures uh, in, in South Africa. They, they, they come in packs, and they, they're, they're horrible. So I'm, I'm looking for those and I'm talking to this guy, looking, talking, looking. And this guy says to me, he shares with me his vision for this South African village. And he goes on to say that what he wants to see is for people no longer having promiscuous sex and no longer uh, stealing from one another, no longer defacing property and, and no longer whatever it is. And I said to him, no, that, that all sounds great, but aren't you getting the cart before the horse here? He said, well, what do you mean? I want, to see, I want to see transformation in this village. 
I said, well, all the things that you want to see are, are wonderful, and, and certainly they would lend toward some transformation, but these are actually fruits of repentant faith. These are, these are, this is what happens when people believe. They start valuing one another as image bearers of God. They start caring more about their neighbor, loving one another, sacrificing, and so on. This is not going to happen. The things you want to see happen are not going to happen through better training or through motivational speeches. When God brings someone to saving faith, He will, again, mold them and conform them into His image. He will change them. They will change. Now, again, it's a change that happens over time. Faith does evidence itself in fruit, but what we're called to do is not get people to change their behavior, those who don't profess Christ. We're not to go, to go out in the world and tell people to stop cussing or whatever it is. Our intent is not to reform the behavior of the world outside of Christ, but to, but to show them Jesus in such a way that hopefully will reorient their trust change what they're actually believing in. Now look at verses 19 through 22. Paul's continuing. He says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. You see the order there. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. And in verse 23, which is not on your screen, that, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So you see, there will be a change in actions what Paul calls deeds in keeping with repentance. But all this happens, verse 20, as the people repent and turn to God, which is simply a euphemism for believing the gospel. Those who belong to God by faith in Jesus have been sanctified and are being sanctified. So if you have turned from your sin, you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have been sanctified, you have been declared not guilty, justified, sanctified, set apart as holy unto God. But we know that that's not how we live out practically, so you are still continually being molded, shaped into the image of God. And here's the thing that's so paradoxical in all this. Notice that it's repentant faith that results in change, not a renewed effort to do better. You know, I mentioned our culture. In our culture, there's an obsession with self-improvement and self-betterment. And, you, you know, you go to the bookstore. Now, few people go to the bookstore anymore because they buy stuff online. But you go to the bookstore, there are big sections of self-help, self-improvement, self-betterment, whatever it is. And, and, and this, of course, this is the sort of sermon that, that, that gains traction and downloads and so on, on on how to become a better person, how to experience change, Right? And this is, this is what we want to see. We want to hear these stories of people. I used to cuss, now I don't. I used to get angry, but now I'm calm. I used to have a problem with lust, but now I look in the other direction. I, I used to be lazy, but now I work hard. But biblical repentance is more than just a change in action. It's more than even just a change in direction. 
There's an intellectual, emotional, volitional, spiritual aspect to it. It is a change of mind, heart, and will. So the Greek word for repentance is the word metanoia, which literally literally means afterthought. Repentance is the thought, the emotion that pops in our head after we have sinned against God, and it's it's a feeling of disgust, of brokenness, of contrition. You know, sometimes people, they claim to be sorry or they'll issue an apology, but then they'll say something like, well, if I had to do it over again, I wouldn't change anything. That's not remorse. That's not repentance. If you, if you want to know if somebody's truly repentant, you can ask them, well, do you wish you would have done things differently? And if you had a chance to do it over, would you do it differently? And if they say brazenly or proudly, no, I would just do, that's not repentance. Repentance is a revulsion of the soul toward my own sin, rebellion, and self-love. Now, here's why I say this is how this works is somewhat ironic or paradoxical. Ironically, any renewed efforts to change, any commitments to get better, to stop doing this, to start doing that, without first a sense of contrition and brokenness, actually, these are actually counterproductive. I'm going to change. I'm going to stop doing this, and I'm going to start doing that. I'm going to stop whatever it is, and I'm going to get better. Any of those attempts apart from brokenness, contrition, are actually counterproductive because they bolster our sense of self and they fuel our already dangerous sense of pride. One theologian, Ethan Richardson, says this, Unless this moment comes first, repentance, a change in action can work the opposite of repentance. Right? The old Adam, who must be righteous and will never accept blame, is alive and well in believers. The idea that we will be better people next week, next month, is far more pleasing to talk about than our ongoing sin. It's only as we see ourselves in light of God's holiness that all of our excuse-making and blame-shifting and life-improvement projects become detestable to us. And we're simply left naked and undone before God. And then and only then do we cry out, in faith to Jesus, trusting that what He alone did on the cross is sufficient to cover our sins. And as we rest in what Jesus has done, we actually start producing fruit in keeping with repentance. It's God working in us. It's mysterious, and it's beautiful, and it's powerful, but it couldn't be more real. So what's the final myth that is exposed in this? Look at verses 23 through 32. That Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to, the, to our people and to the Gentiles. As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. And then he does something absolutely incredible. He turns to the king, for the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, he says, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me, 
this day might become such as I am, except for these change. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with him. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if only he had not appealed to Caesar. So you have to love how brazen Paul is here. He says, Since Jesus called me by God's power, I have not stopped telling everybody, small and great, those of the highest ranking positions in Rome, those who are the least, uh, those who are the, the peasants and the peons and so on, what all the prophets said, namely about Jesus' suffering and death for sinners and his resurrection from the dead. And Festus, the governor, says, man, you're crazy. <laughs> You've been spending too much time in the, book, in the books. You need to get out in real life and, and engage with some real people. And Paul doesn't launch into a personal defense of his mental state. Instead, he doubles down. He looks over at the king, Agrippa, and says, King, you know what I'm saying is true. I know that you believe this. I know that you know what I'm saying is true. And then he says, in essence, will you right now put your faith in Jesus? And the king says, you really think that in the span of this short conversation, you're going to convince me to become a Christian? And Paul says, short conversation, long conversation, I don't care. I just want anybody that will listen to me to, be, to believe on Jesus. He says, Paul says, what really matters is, what are you going to do with Jesus? King Agrippa would ultimately conclude that Paul had done nothing wrong and so on. And, um, but I think this gives us a good example of, of what, what we're actually doing when we're sharing our faith. Sometimes I think we believe that we're just sort of giving information trying to make a, a theological argument or presentation, but at the heart of biblical evangelism is actually a call to believe. Here's our final point this morning. Evangelism is neither a presentation of information nor an argument to win, but a humble and heartfelt plea to turn to God by trusting in Jesus. We've spent 20-plus weeks in the book of Acts, and, and through my sermon prep, God has been super kind to me by His Spirit to, to reveal things to me that I hadn't seen before, to teach me much, which is how it should work, right? When you're preparing to teach or preach, you should be learning. And so I've been really grateful for uh, the Lord's kindness there and what He's taught me through uh, by preaching through this book. And one of the things that's really stood out to me, that as many times as I've read Acts before, I never really noticed was how many times the ambassadors of Jesus are described as actually calling people to repent and believe. I mean, yes, they employ sound arguments and, and they, you know, they're persuasive with their words, but they actually, they're not giving PowerPoint presentations here. They're not indifferent in their approach. They're actually calling and sometimes commanding people to repent and believe. Now, fully recognizing that that God is the one who does all the work, right? C point number one, God's the one who does the work. I think there's overwhelming evidence in the Scriptures that as those commissioned to do evangelism, those who have been called by God in Christ, redeemed, forgiven, justified, made new, we're not simply giving information. We're actually calling people to respond. We're asking people ever so humbly, what are you going to do about Jesus? What are you going to do 
about Jesus. Will you repent and believe? And I have to tell you, I failed in this way with a guy I was talking to a couple of weeks ago as I'm sharing the gospel. I never once asked him, what are you going to do about Jesus? I never once asked him, as he, he, things, I wouldn't say they escalated, but he began to become more and more sort of agitated. I never asked him, will you repent and believe? I believe God works through these calls to repent. Now, Paul may not have seen, quote, success with King Agrippa or even Festus for that matter, but the seed was planted. And we've seen throughout 26 chapters of Acts the work that God has done as Christ's ambassadors have called people to repent and believe. Now, let me just make one very, very important caveat here. I'm not talking about manipulating people to raise a hand. I'm not talking about uh, sort of coercing or, or emotionally uh, coercing people to pray a prayer or walk down an aisle. I'm not talking about anything like that. That approach, frankly, often employed in youth groups and prisons and other places, actually can be more harmful than helpful. Because people, are, they're emotional, they, they, they raise a hand, they're persuaded to do whatever, but they're not really repenting and turning in faith to Jesus. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about manipulating somebody to, to, quote, make a decision. I'm talking about directly, urgently, graciously, lovingly calling people to respond to the gospel message, asking people with love, humility, and grace, what are you going to do about Jesus? If he really did raise from the dead, if he was raised from the dead, if he really did conquer death and hell and the grave and sin and so on, if he really did demonstrate the very power of God, what are you going to do about Jesus? Just a moment, I'm going to have our deacons come forward. We're going to participate in the Lord's table together, celebrate communion as a church. And this is a time when we, when we as believers, we, we reflect on the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. And sometimes, we, we usually make, we say this in our instructions, this is for believers. But I want to say to you this morning, if you're, if you're not a believer, if you're just investigating the things of Christ, if you're just trying to f- figure out how all this works, what does it mean to be a Christian? Let me say to you, I'm absolutely thrilled that you're here. You are welcome here anytime, every time. But I will say this, when the, when the elements come before you, you really have two, two options. One is to let them pass, and there's no shame in that. But the other is this, this may be the time, this may be the moment when God is calling you to repent and believe. God, the Holy Spirit, God has you here for a reason. You didn't just sort of stumble in here by accident. You were here, as we say, by divine appointment. And maybe, maybe you call yourself a Christian, you've called yourself a Christian for years or decades. But there's no evidence of fruit in keeping with repentance. There's no greater love for God no greater love for neighbor, no greater interest in the things of God, no greater humility, no greater faith. And maybe what God is doing this morning, He has you here, so He will bring you to a place of saving faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and its power. Thank you that it is living and active and it just pierces through the innermost parts of our being. And I want to pray this morning, Lord, that you would comfort those who are here who are worried, have I done enough? And they, don't, they would never say these words, but they're really fully engrossed in a self-salvation project, thinking if I can just do more and be better and change the way I live, then God will approve of me. God, will you enable them this morning to really rest in the gospel? 
to trust in the finished work of Jesus. And I want to pray for the, the one this morning, maybe a woman or a man or a student or a senior adult or a child, and that person has never really repented and turned in faith to Jesus. Father, I want to plead with you this morning in the name of Christ that you will bring him or her to saving faith. And I pray as we participate in the Lord's table that you will remind us yet again it won't be our sacrifice that merits any sort of good standing before you. It is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who lived perfectly, died in our place, and was raised again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.